This is Bruce Molitoris, President of the American Society of Nephrology, and this afternoon I have with me three interesting individuals that we're going to ask about their thoughts about the um, Kidney Week so far. The first is Ravi Thadani, who is the Director of Nephrology at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Second is Lori Hartwell, who is a patient advocate and a patient herself uh, and has run the Renal Support Network as the CEO for over 20 years. And Nick Pollan, who is the head of one of the, renal, one of the Pfizer Renal Research Units. Um, so I'm, I'm going to ask a little bit different question today. I'm going to ask, Lori, you told me the other night you've been coming to the ASN Kidney Week for more than 20 years. What do you, as a patient and a patient advocate, look for in the meeting and take home from the meeting? Well, I've been a patient since 1968. So when I started to come to ASN uh, you know, 20 years ago, and I would come for a variety of reasons with companies or for my nonprofit, I just was so inspired because it just reminded me that so many people were working behind the scenes to improve the lives of people with kidney disease. And I try to relay that information to my, my peers and people in the community because a lot of times they walk into the doctor's office, they just see the doctor, or they walk into the dialysis unit, and that's the only thing they see. And I want them to know that there's over 12, 14,000 people coming to this meeting that are working to make their lives better. And you just got to stay well and take care of yourself for the next miracle to happen, and I'm proof that, of that. Thank you. From an industry point of view, Nick, um, and research in industry, what do you come to the meeting for? Um, well, I come from a number of different things. Um, I suppose the first thing is a purely education thing. I'm relatively new to the renal disease area. There's some fantastic pedigree in this particular room, but um, I've only really been working in renal disease for the last three or four years. So there's a huge um, need from my perspective to just get myself up to speed with everything that's happening. But I suppose um, the defining moments for any particular meeting are where, at least from a pharmaceutical perspective, you see an idea that's emerged in recent years um, that's worked upon, a hypothesis has been tested, and you see clinical benefit. I think both Ravi and I were in the session yesterday when Peter Mundell um, presented data on B7 point one nephropathy, if you like. If that is a new name, I don't know. But certainly it's a, a very exciting piece of data that's just recently come out. And there was a tremendous buzz in the room, um, not only because it was clearly improving, potentially improving outcomes for those particular patients, but actually as a, as a fundamental question that had been asked, somebody went out and did the critical clinical experiment. And I think for both patients, as well as the research community, that translational evidence is, and seeing it firsthand, is, is probably the most exciting thing I've seen for a long time. Thank you. Uh, Ravi, how about you? Uh, just to echo uh, what, what Nick said and what Lori said, I think this year's meeting uh, is quite exciting. And when we think about the people in the audience, whether it be the trainees, the young faculty members, the clinicians especially, uh, the people at the front line and the patients that we have, uh, this meeting has been uh, one where the buzz is apparent and palpable from room to room. In fact, yesterday I was at a session, in addition to the one that Nick mentioned, I was at a session talking about should we measure vitamin D levels or should we measure PTH levels. And the unfortunate thing about that session was that the line outside the room was longer than the people in the room and you couldn't get in. 
Uh, that buzz, uh, like I said, both at the basic science level and at the clinical level, again, for this meeting has been incredibly palpable. That's great. Um, tell me what, you've kind of told me what your favorite thing is you've seen, you've told me. Lori, what's the most exciting thing you've seen? Well, you know, one of the things that's so exciting is when I hear about some of the innovation of like acute kidney injury. Like some people will never have to be on dialysis. Like there's treatment to just pre prevent that. Of course, transplantation things are new. You hear of all the different applications and drugs people can take. Or one of the things I'm really excited about is a donor-specific antibody test that you know you can now have to understand if you're having any type of rejection or anything happening. Um, and you know, when you come to the meeting, it's just like you said, it's everybody's in a creative mindset and they're looking to help people with kidney disease and there's a sharing of information. And this year in particular, I felt so welcomed by everybody and I'm so happy that I could inspire people because I'm a result of everybody's hard work here. And the only reason I'm alive today is because of people being innovative and taking that risk. Ravi, uh, thank you, Lori. Um, Ravi, you went to the, uh, and was in charge of the high-impact, late-breaking clinical trials. What did you think, and do you want to tell us a little bit about the resulting publications? And sure, sure. What an exciting uh, session we had this morning. Um, the first thing I will say is that we had so many submissions this year, I think probably a record number of submissions in that category, in an area that traditionally in nephrology there's been a paucity of, of work, and I think that we certainly need to celebrate. The second thing I would say is that um, the diversity of studies going on in our field, from small first-in-human studies, proof-of-concept studies, to large outcome studies, those are going on. They're not, uh, uh, there's no absence of them. There's no question we need to do more studies. There's no question we need to encourage the foundations and the NIH and, and industry to continue in that effort and academicians. But the number of studies that are coming out, I mean, incredibly powerful. So what was the summary from this morning's session? The large studies, uh, big ones like comparing lisinopril and losartan compared to uh, lisinopril alone or dual therapy, uh, the VA studies stopped early because of acute kidney injury and hyperkalemia. Uh, novel agent bardoxolone, large study, uh, stopped early primarily because of heart failure events. So on that level, novel agent and traditional agents on a big scale somewhat disappointing, but nevertheless very informative in terms of telling us what we need to do with our patients. Then we had other studies that were a surprise, like a study that talked about the comparison of uh, lisinopril versus atenolol in chronic dialysis patients. Surprise to everyone, lower cardiovascular events, lower stroke episodes, MACE episodes uh, in the atenolol group. Completely a shock. Coming out of a single center in Indiana, what a surprise. And then some really novel, I would say, uh, agents like a, a potassium binder. Um, we had a terrific study on the risk stratification based on genetics uh, and the genetics of APOL1 that has come out. So when we look at the aggregate, again, the diversity, terrific. This was the first year, in addition to the study that Nick mentioned, which was published in the New England Journal simultaneously. There were three publications in that journal this morning uh, of the three of the, of the seven presentations we had. But those are just today. In fact, when speaking to all the authors, we're going to see the other studies make their way to high-level journals in the coming weeks to months. The excitement, and we're make, you know, the excitement was palpable not only in the small sessions but in the big sessions. We are making headway. We need to do more, but there is some light. 
so if I was a skeptic, and sometimes I am, I would say, well, we had three studies that are being published that were stopped for high side effects, significant, mm -hmm. serious side effects. And how does industry react to that? Um, it's not your drug, it's not your compound, but you look at it and you go, wow, uh, we're investing a lot of money in this field, in the field of being very broad sense. Um, how do you take that back and, and what do you talk about when you get home? Bruce, do you mind if I just interrupt yeah. for just one second? When you look at those studies, clearly a novel agent versus not stopped early, but some of those studies addressed key practice questions that go on today. In other words, they were testing hypotheses to ask, are we practicing correctly today? So on the one hand, you can argue some of them might have been negative and neutral. On the other hand, people are practicing in those ways up until today, realizing that what we may be doing might be harmful. So in the end, we actually are providing good and benefit to patients, at least on the bigger scale. Now, I apologize going back to Nick. From an industry perspective, I'm obviously curious. Um, so I suppose the first thing is that, that safety is paramount in whatever you do. And so any study that we perform it needs to be done with the, with the patient's safety in mind. And we tend to stop studies as early as we possibly can. You know, that's the default position and anything. It doesn't matter whether it's bardoxolone or an agent that's in very early development. Um, if we go back to the example of yesterday, which was um, taking Arencia into that particular patient population, it's still a very bold move. But at least there's some knowledge of how that agent performs, at least in an RA population, that gives you at least encouragement. But those patients would have been supervised very, very closely. So the first thing is safety is, is paramount. And um, it's fantastic that um, the Bardoxalone data were presented today. So that actually, as a community, we can all reflect on it. Um, the key thing, I think, for the pharmaceutical industry is that we try and understand whether or not it's something to do with the mechanism or whether it's something to do with the agent itself. The wonderful thing about um, Bardoxolone is it, it embraced a community and they rapidly recruited patients uh, for that study. So that says a lot about the need in this area. Um, and if we were sure that actually that class of agents um, was effective against the mechanism that it was targeted for, um, and actually there were examples out there which um, had a reduced safety profile or we could understand the safety, then I'm sure that would be the inducement for any other company to want to go in there. There's a lot we still don't understand about the mechanism of that agent. That's certainly something that I think for any program we try and understand as early as possible. But there's always going to be that risk. It's hypothesis-driven um, uh, work, um, and it's really important that um, we conduct those studies properly, proficiently, as cheaply as we possibly can, and in the right patient population. There's been a, a theme emerging from this meeting. It's probably a whole new discipline that's, that's come out of this, so this notion of molecular nephrology um, as, as both a concept for diagnosis, but also as a concept for stratifying patients, both those with unique predispositions, whether they be genetic or whether they be some other feature, um, that may help in terms of stratifying uh, care and supporting those early clinical studies. Um, there's a, huge transition, I think, in the last few years between this notion of just trying to treat proteinuria and now talking about renal function decline as the real objective in this space, 
so many initiatives are now falling off the back of this, both in terms of the identification of the rapid decliners and all the work that the Kidney Health Initiative are doing to better try and you know, better understand how, how an individual response changes with time. So, so Glenn Chertow mentioned today at the end of his presentation, which was an excellent presentation, and I really have to give Riata credit for spending the time and the money to dig through the data yeah. and help inform us so that we can design you know, clinical trials in the future that have a greater chance of being successful. Um, but he mentioned at the end when he was questioned that perhaps those patients with a higher BMP mm. or with previous episodes of congestive heart failure were more prone to the major side effect that, that did in the study. And I'm wondering, you know, I keep talking about individualization of patient care, individualization of assigning patients to therapies, and you know, what does industry think about individualization and collecting the data that's necessary? You mentioned molecular diagnostics, biomarkers, uh, et cetera. Um, so uh, it's, 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 it's known, um, but Pfizer, for instance, have signed a collaborative uh, partnership with Eli Lilly working with the, with the Jocelyn type 2 diabetes cohorts for us to better understand renal function decline in those patients. Um, the objective of that um, is to help in terms of um, identifying individuals that perhaps we could do a renal function uh, decline study in to actually identify those individuals for those studies. Are there particular features about them that would help us design potentially smaller more cost-efficient studies and actually focus on endpoints that are much more important to the patient overall um, than perhaps just a change in, in proteinuria. And I think that's actually a massive transition from where we were a few years ago. And we have the facility actually not just in diabetic nephropathy, but I think in a number of different mm -hmm. conditions where you can match the features of, of changes within the, within the kidney as well as other surrogate biofluid samples um, and to identify those patients that you really think could benefit from the treatment. Um, and you know, it's, it's all about trying to design quicker, smaller studies. Um, there's certainly a place, I think, for stratified medicines within you know, the disease areas that we have in the, in the kidney field. I asked uh, uh, Glenn at the end of his excellent presentation, uh, Glenn, what did you learn and what can you share with the community about that particular study? And he gave the spot-on answer, I think, just as Nick echoed, which is that these kinds of studies shouldn't stifle innovation. In fact, they should spur on innovation. They should improve our ability to decide whom to include and whom not to include in different studies. And my suspicion, and I think Nick said this, and that is whoever the sponsor is, we'd much rather have a positive study than a negative study in a large population that it may not work in, or a study that may be misdirected in some ways. And I think the precision, whether they be genetic or intermediate biomarkers that might give us a clue, certainly are probably a way that we need to move forward. Uh, Lori, from the patient perspective, what are we missing? What is the physician component missing in clinical trials that you think is important to understand? Well, you know, I. I in my teenage years in the 80s, I spent a lot of time in the clinical research center at UCLA, you know, investigating peritoneal dialysis when they were figuring out 
innovation and clinical studies have been part of my framework my whole entire life. And I think, you know, you really have to explain the risks and benefits to a patient of getting into a study. And they have to understand them. And I've been part of uh, new therapies that just didn't quite work. And then, you know, I recently went through the whole desensitization protocol with 100% antibodies, and I have a 0.6 creatinine. So I clearly benefited from that. And it, it is, it's, you know, it's a medical practice. And I've realized over the years that, you know, they're practicing on us. We're working as a team and the more you can engage the patient to be involved and understand I think the better overall you have as an outcome because the patient can really participate and just to you know follow up I saw that late breaking news on the the potassium binding and I'm like you know my heart stopped for six minutes from a high potassium at 14 years old and just to let you know it wasn't my fault okay um, and uh, um, and you know, just to think like, wow, you won't be scared of like Thanksgiving dinner anymore. I mean, that's how it comes down to the patient. It's changing their day-to-day -day life and improving it. And you know, you know, not longer will be afraid of going out and having spaghetti with your family if this becomes part of the framework of, of healthcare. And that's what's exciting because you can go live your life the way you were supposed to and not worry about, you know, your labs being deadly to you. And that's what's really exciting. So the, as much as you can educate the patient early on and engage them in the process, the better everybody is. Just to follow up on that, I mean, Nick mentioned, what did we learn from the Bardoxone experience? The rapid enrollment, not just local, but global. And so there's a passion, not just from the academic physician side, not just from the industry side, from, but from the patient side. And I think we all know our patients are incredibly uh, uh, courageous, but they're also uh, grateful for the opportunities when they come up and in the right way can be encouraged to participate. I remember taking steroids like for transplant, like 80 or 100 milligrams with my first transplant. And I would have eaten a horse. I mean, I was so hungry, you know, and just to see now, like, you know, you don't, you don't have those problems with transplant anymore. The um, innovation of medication, you have some other side effects, but they certainly, weren't like they were in the 70s. I mean, you were just always hungry. And sometimes I think, wow, that, that risk may not have been worth it, uh, that continuous hunger. So how a lot of progression and um, exciting. How does a physician go about quantifying how a patient feels? You know, there's a, there's a big discussion about, um, I'm always in favor of, an illness is too demanding when you don't have hope. And we know in this population, there's a lot of depression. And I like to talk about hope is the opposite of depression. And the more the patient can talk about their future and living their life, and, and it's also important for the healthcare professional to have that expectation of the patient that they're gonna get some kind of therapy or they're doing dialysis, but to encourage them to not stop their life and to go live it. Because too much free time in chronic kidney disease is dangerous. And, um, I think that that I was very lucky to be around physicians that always encouraged me and challenged me to go do something with my life. And I think that's so important. So if you see a patient and you're, what are, what are you doing? And they're like, nothing. Don't accept that. Challenge them. You know, go volunteer at the library. Go, you need to go do something. And I, I, I was a benefit of a lot of physicians having a lot of high expectations of me. And we often deliver when they do. Thank you. Um, Nick, I'm going <clears> to <throat> go back to what you said uh, about this interaction between Pfizer and Lilly and the Jaws and Clinic 
Are you looking to develop ways to start therapies at a much earlier stage uh, in the process of renal decline? Well, so if the, if the question is, could you take a patient that was um, predicted to have rapid renal function decline, and could you look earlier than stage three, as is the conventional measure, um, then I'd say, yes, I think that's a possibility. Um, I think the amount of work that you would have to do to convince both physicians, regulators, and patients that um, there is a, you know, a, a definite financial benefit of treating patients early, as well as a therapeutic benefit. Um, but I think that's a, a certainly a, a process that one could potentially get to once you have those sorts of data. Um, I think the comment that's been made to me once is that quite a lot of patients, because of the nature of the, the sort of annual follow-up, you may see them once, and then the next time you see them, they're getting ready for, for dialysis. So there certainly is a population out there that we're not seeing. Um, and if we were aware of it and we could advise them better, that you know, they're either they're at a risk because of compliance or some other reason, then I think you can really counsel the patient to more actively engage with their health condition and, and ways to address it. Um, so I'd certainly see that's, that's, a, that's a possibility, but we're, we're, there's a long way to go, I think, before we're there yet. Because our studies now, because of the endpoints and the signal over noise, you know, tend to occur in stage 3B or stage 4 patients where the comorbidities are at a very high level. And, you know, bardoxolone, for example, a lot of those patients already had underlying cardiovascular disease, congestive heart failure. Um, and then we want to study them for a shorter period of time, get the readout we need, but is it really as likely that we're going to make significant clinical strides in therapy, therapeutics if we start that late? I'm looking at you, Ravi. If we start that late, well, you have to ask where do we begin in order to find a signal. Our goal is to try to find a signal. Uh, based on a signal, we can ask the question, can we go upstream and perhaps intervene much earlier? But, but industry but, can't wait five years for right. a signal, and so we go late in the disease right. where the signal will occur within one to two years. Right. What if we designed ways to go five years, started earlier looking for a signal, and, and did types of studies that were less expensive, um, pragmatic studies, right. which is all the rave now, and looked for five years or seven years and started earlier in this process. So there's a couple of things perhaps to, to mention in this. Um, the Kidney Health Initiative, I think from the ASN, um, will hopefully move that needle. Hmm. The FDA is insisting, of course, that we just don't have changes in GFR, but we have doubling of serum creatinine, that we have end-stage renal disease. And by the way, when Eliza Thompson from the FDA, who's terrific and been an incredible advocate, who spoke at our nephroprevention course earlier in the week, talked about appropriate endpoints, she included cardiovascular in there because we often have therapies that help the kidney but hurt the heart or help the heart and hurt the kidney. I think working and, and those efforts with the agency, with the regulatory bodies, with industry, if we're going to go earlier, we have to be willing to accept the intermediate endpoints, if you will, because the hard endpoints aren't just going to happen and we can't wait for 10 years in right. order to see them. I'm going to go ahead and stop it now. Uh, I, I again want to thank Ravi Thadani, Lori Hartwell, and Nick Pullen for taking the time and letting us know what they think about Kidney Week this week and their thoughts of the future for treating 
uh, and hope in kidney disease. So thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.